Saturated, a podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca, and today we are, no thoughts, head empty, reading you some pretty passages from books just because we like them. It is truly the heart of Infatuated today, so settle in, it's going to be a nice time. (laughs) So Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I infatuated with The Diary of a Bookseller by Sean... <laughs> Sean Bythel? Sean Bythel. Sean Bythel. Yes. <laughs> so, this came out in 2017, and it's a diary from February 2014 to February 2015. Right. It's written by Sean, a bookseller, and the owner of the bookshop in Wigtown, which... For those of you outside of the UK may not know, is in the like Dumfries and Galloway region in Scotland and is actually Scotland's national book town. Who knew? Yep. And there are many bookshops there, including the bookshop, which is Scotland's largest second hand bookshop. Huh. Yeah. And they also have the Wigtown Book Festival there, which is the second largest book festival in Scotland, which I assume is behind the Edinburgh book festival largest second hand book shop and second largest book festival yeah <laughs> loves it yeah so i'm gonna be honest i don't have much analysis today there isn't really much to analyze because it's just stories about the shop customers aspects of book selling i honestly hadn't thought of too much like where all the books come from <laughs> <laughs> like he doesn't buy them from like a wholesaler like he goes yeah. to like estates and auctions and you know like estate oh. sales I mean and auctions and people bring in boxes of books and he pays for them all it's not just like donations so that was exciting to find out about there's behind the scenes of the book festival stories about employees as well and there's some really interesting discussion about Amazon and what Amazon has done to the book industry uh-huh. um which is you know, it's as you can imagine, not great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I basically just wanted to read out passages I liked. So settle in for <laughs> bookshop story time. Oh, this is going to be so like bedtime stories vibes. I'm mm, excited. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so every entry begins with the number of online orders that day, along with the number of, the, of books they actually found in the shop to fulfil those orders. And the entries end with the cash total in the till and the number of customers they had. And at the start of each month, Sean quotes from George Orwell's book, Bookshop Memories, and compares Orwell's experience as a bookseller to his own. Okay. Yeah. So I thought I'd read out a couple of those. So this is the beginning of the March chapter. When I worked in a second-hand bookshop, so easily pictured if you do not work in one, is a kind of paradise where charming old gentlemen browse eternally among calf-bound folios. The thing that chiefly struck me was the rarity of really bookish people. From George Orwell, Bookshop Memories. Really bookish people are a rarity, although there are vast numbers of those who consider themselves to be such. The latter are particularly easy to identify. Often they will introduce themselves when they enter the shop as book people, and insist on telling you that we love books. They'll wear t-shirts or carry bags with slogans explaining exactly how much they think they adore books, 
but the surest means of identifying them is that they never, ever buy books. These days, it is so rare that I find the time to read that. When I do, it feels like the purest form of indulgence, more so than any other sensory experience. When an important relationship in my 30s came to an end, the only thing I could do was read, and I amassed a pile of books into which I sank and escaped from the world around me and inside me. The landscapes of Jonathan Mead's William Boyd, Jose Saramago, John Buchan, Alistair Reed, John Kennedy Toole and others protected me from my own thoughts which were pushed into the background where they could silently process without bothering me. I created a physical wall on my desk made from the books and as I read them the wall slowly came down until it was gone. In a more real sense, books are the commodity in which I trade and the enormous numbers of them out there in the world excite a different part of my mind. When I go to a house to buy books, there is an anticipation unlike anything else. It's like casting a net and never knowing what you'll find when you gather it in. I think that book dealers and antique dealers probably have the same sense of excitement when following up a call. As Gogo put it in Dead Souls, Once, long ago, in the years of my youth, in the years of my childhood, which have flashed irretrievably by, it was a joy for me to drive for the very first time to a place unknown. I like the wall of books. Yeah, I like the wall of books coming down. It is a good, good wee metaphor. And then I also want to read the beginning of the May chapter. It is not true that men do not read novels, but it is true that there are whole branches of fiction that they avoid. Roughly speaking, what one might call the average novel the ordinary, good, bad, gullsworthy and water stuff which is the norm of the English novel seems to exist only for women. Men read either the novels it is possible to respect or detective stories. From George Orwell, Bookshop Memories. <laughs> Despite the success of the television serialisation of the Foresight Saga, the gullsworthy and water type of books to which Orwell refers are entirely overlooked by today's customers. In Geoffrey Farnall, Dennis Wheatley, Warwick Deeping, O. Douglas, Baroness Orsay, so rapaciously consumed in their heyday, now only serve as resting places for dust and dead blue bottles. As regards women being greater fiction readers, Orwell's gender stereotyping is still largely true today, although his assertion that only men read the novels it is possible to respect by today's standards sounds, at the very least, anachronistic. My own taste must be unusual by his reckoning in that I prefer fiction, but not detective stories. Most non-fiction, unless it's a passion, such as Galloway, I'm currently reading Dane Love's book The Galloway Highlands, seems pretty hard work as far as I can see, but the immersive capacity of a good novel to transport you into a different world is unique to the written word. On the whole, in my shop at least, the majority of fiction is still bought by women, while men rarely buy anything other than non-fiction, a trend borne out in a completely unscientific experiment carried out by the author Ian McEwan a few years ago in London. He decided to give away free copies of one of his books during a busy lunchtime. Almost all of those who showed appreciation were women, and those who responded with suspicion were nearly all men. This led McEwan to conclude in The Guardian that when women stop reading, the novel will be dead a sentiment with which Orwell might, up to a point, have agreed. It is hard to predict what customers will buy, although the number of men who head straight to the railway section is uncanny. (laughs) (laughs) 
I do think it's funny because there is a certain type of person, and it's not always a man, but there is a very certain type of person that loves trains. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's funny how many like railway book anecdotes there are in this, <laughs> and it's all men. <laughs> Someone that I work with really loves trains, and she went travelling like around Europe, mm-hmm. and I was like asking her, like, oh, what was the best bit? And she was just like, oh, I've just got to be on trains all the time. <laughs> That's quite sweet. (laughs) Okay, so now I thought I'd read out some more like anecdotal ones um, about customers or weird situations. And the first one is from Saturday the 15th of March. Online orders, three. Books found, two. Today's first customer was a short man with a wispy beard who suddenly appeared at the counter, startling me. He grinned and said, you've got some stuff here, haven't you? Some stuff, some stuff. He bought a copy of The Hobbit. I'm putting a mental jigsaw together of what a Hobbit looks like based on a composite of every customer I've ever sold a copy to. After lunch, a customer asked if we have a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. We didn't, but a few moments after he'd left, a woman brought in two boxes of books to sell, one of which contained a copy. It's much more rewarding when this happens the other way around. <laughs> Tell total, 78, 98, 13 customers. Aww. <laughs> that was so joyous. Yeah. <laughs> That's what a lot of this book is. <laughs> this one is from Monday the 14th of July. Online orders, 6. Books found, 5. Laurie made it in today. Clearly a family member is on kitten duty. Shortly after she had arrived, a customer came to the counter and said, Good morrow to you, sir. Would you mind, perchance, directing me toward any of your shelves which might contain any books on the subject of military history? The shelves were particularly untidy by the end of the day, an inevitable consequence of a multitude of children being in the shop. Some parents think that it's acceptable to let their offspring run riot around the shop, disturbing other customers and leaving a trail of devastation. Most, though, are fine and the children well behaved. There is an instinct that appears common to all boys of four years old when presented with a shelf of books, the spines neatly lined up with the edge of the shelf. They seem incapable of resisting the urge to push them back as far as they can against the back of the bookcase. The sight of a neatly lined row of books is irresistible to small boys, and they can no more control their desire to make a mess of them than they can suppress the urge to pull a cat's tail or jump in a puddle. Nikki reminded me recently that she thinks my insistence on keeping the place ordered and tidy is some form of OCD and genuinely believes that customers like pile of books all over the floor and don't really much care for them being organised by subject or category. Tell total 223, 98, 21 customers. I think I'm a four-year-old boy. (laughs) You push them back? Not like in actual bookshops, because I feel like that would be rude. But sometimes I do it in the library and then I pull them back out again. Because <laughs> it, it gives me this like, satisfaction to push them back. And sometimes I have a fondness for the tiniest book. Yeah. So I like to push them all back so you can see what the tiniest book is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. I feel very called out by that passage. 
Okay, so this one's from Tuesday the 2nd of September. Online orders for Books Found 2. Laurie and bright and early. At 2pm, a customer with a very neatly trimmed moustache came to the counter and said, I've been looking for a copy of Apsley Cherry Goddard's The Worst Journey in the World for years after I lent mine to a friend who never gave it back to me. I see you have a copy, but it's £23. It seems like a lot of money for an old book. So, after years of looking for a copy of The Worst Journey in the World, he finally found one, and a scarce edition too, but £23 was too much. As I was sorting through the boxes of books from Hauvar, I came across a copy of Colin's French phrase book in a box. You really would have to be on the most dismal holiday to find the following phrases useful. Someone has fallen in the water. <laughs> Can you make a splint? She has been run over. Help me carry him. I wish to be x-rayed. Leave me alone. I do not like this. The chambermaid never comes when I ring. I was here in 1940. Eleven hostages were shot here. <laughs> Tell total, 218, 93, 20 customers. Fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> okay, and I've got one more. This is from Wednesday the 19th of November. If you can pronounce all the names in this, I'll give you a sweet aim. <laughs> I definitely can. I definitely can. Online orders, five. Books found, three. At 11am, a teenage boy shuffled awkwardly to the counter and placed a paperback copy of The Catcher in the Rye in front of me, with the £2.50 change required to pay for it. Few books have affected me the way that book did when I was around the same age as that boy and going through the torturous transition into adulthood. Salinger's portrayal of Holden Caulfield's disengagement with the world in which he is forced to live must have resonated with millions of teenage readers over the decades since its first publication in 1951. Till total, 48 nine customers. Aww. I just think it's sweet. I know there's so many jokes about the catcher in the rye and the kind of people that read that book, but actually, when you're a teenager and you read the catcher in the rye, you do relate to Holden Caulfield, so... I've never read it. But yeah, I'm sure that you do. I wrote my college advanced higher English dissertation on the Catcher in the Rye. I mean, I did mine on To Kill a Mockingbird, so we're equally basic. Yeah, I did The Catcher in the Rye and The Virgin Suicides. I did To Kill a Mockingbird, The Member of the Wedding, and Tom Sawyer. So yeah, that, that's me for quotes today. I did have a little look at the Goodreads reviews for this book and noticed a few people saying they didn't like the humour in this because they thought Sean was too judgmental or snarky or that his sarcasm was mean instead of funny. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that these readers were not Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely wry, mm -hmm. but I think this book was hilarious. <laughs> So yeah, that's me today. I would like to point out there are some quite more like poignant passages where he does talk about like what I like to call the magic of books, mm. but like the importance of them and the importance of bookshops and yeah, like I said about Amazon sort of pricing out bookshops like this. It is really sad. But yeah, I think if someone's writing a, a book about being a bookseller, it's a given that that will be included. Mm. So that's why I wanted to concentrate more on like the observations today. Um, it was really fun. I yeah. really enjoyed that. Yes, good read. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
And what are you infatuated with? I am infatuated with Light Perpetual by Francis Spofford. Excellent name, by the way. Hope I'm yep. pronouncing that one right. It could be Spofford, but anyway, it's a good name. And this is a speculative fiction novel which takes place in the years after World War II in London. Mm-hmm. So the premise of the novel is basically... In 1944, a German rocket strikes a shop and five children are killed. But what if they weren't? Okay. So what if that rocket never landed and those five children went on to live? What would their lives be like? And it's a kind of love letter to the mundane in a way. Mm -hmm. It celebrates all the unremarkable bits of life because the whole point is like life's not guaranteed. So it's like hardly a groundbreaking concept, but I don't think it stops being true. So mm-hmm. it always works. Yeah. And the, the basic structure is like every part is like that the time of that bomb going off plus five years, plus 25 years, plus 35 years. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool in that way. But basically the thing that I'm infatuated with in this novel is just the description. There is ridiculous, lavish description of feelings and moments and experiences that are only special because they've been described in detail. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to talk much about the plot or the characters because, to be honest, they don't really matter. I'm just going (laughs) to read four quite long passages that I really like. Okay. So strap in, guys. Get comfortable. (laughs) This is 35 years after the bomb didn't go off. So this is 1979. Joe has a little house on the Heights. Really, the summer house of the grander glass-walled place next door but separated from it during some kind of marital dispute of the landlords, and now rented out on its own, with its own little crease in the hillside, filled with the deep green shade of pines and succulents, bamboo and yucca, the California green that can make you forget the California brown all around it. The deck is upstairs, on a level with the tops of the branches, and looks west through a notch in the skyline towards the bruise-coloured inversion layer and the mica glitter of Ellie on the plain below. When she breakfasts out there, it isn't usually morning. Times they're recording, like now, make her almost nocturnal. And once she's got rid of any company, less and less of a necessity these days, and comes blearily outside with a cup of black coffee and a sliced peach taken cold from the fridge, it's around five in the afternoon. The sun is sinking westwards, swollen and bloody, and she sits in a puddle of crimson light, her eyes itching behind her shades. But then the track of the sun takes it behind the canyon wall. The last lip of its disc blazes into a bright line and disappears, and all of a sudden she finds herself in a space of gentle air, long-shadowed, blood-warm. The cicadas are tuning up their instruments. The smog above the city is dimming to pearlescent prettiness. The lights below are just beginning to twinkle out their come-on that never tires. She's tired, though. She pours a second cup of coffee, and in the couple of hours that are hers before she is due at that night's restaurant rendezvous, she makes herself fetch out the four-track in the twilight and, with no one to hear, tries to work out a little music on her own account. Guitar first. This is a song she's trying to come at from both ends. She has a few of the words and an inkling of the tune, but not the whole of either. What she knows is the colours it should be. It should be grey, silver and brown. The brown, that is, of old wood, or old brick walls, not the warm living brown of skin, which needs a different music altogether. Cold weather colours that are nowhere on the Californian palette, 
even in this tender evening glow. So maybe A minor? An acoustic, of course. She settles the ovation on her knee and picks out a little basic pattern in 4-4 time, plucks it, rather, with her nails to give it a melancholy sharpness, an almost tinkling plaintive edge in the sound. Steady, though. She doesn't want to pick the steel strings too hard and turn the sound too country. Hmm. Round and round she goes, and her intuitions of tune begin to take more shape and to declare themselves. Something is forming, a structure for the verses. Three lines, two short, one double long that goes and a chorus, higher, which, for all three little sets of call and response, will make a wistful, tentative, suspended kind of sound, at least the first time she sings through it, but which can then fill out with a stronger push of mournful feeling on the next visit before soaring out both times into a line that will use her full voice. Like that, or nearly like that. Something's there and it has the colouring she wants. Grey, silver, brown, which for her, memory colours. The shades for things remembered rather than physically present. Is it hers, though? In this groping early stage, it's hard to tell apart a melody you're discovering from one you're half-remembering. She thinks so, but tucks a little mental reservation into place, so she isn't wholly surprised or disheartened if she remembers a source for it in another song, later. Right, catch it while the catching is good. The shadows have lengthened out into a sheet of shade, abolishing the gold etching round the edges of the leaves, and the sky is going to dark violet, and the lights of the city on the plain are sparkling brighter in proportion. Plug in the pickup. Stretch the leader from a new spool of decent BASF tape through the heads and onto the take-up reel. Fast forward a little way. Flip, 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 flip. Zero the timer. Turn on track one and check the needle moves with a chord or two. Check tracks two, three and four are safely off. Cue up the combination of buttons for record with pause engaged as a trigger. Breathe and pause off. The sweet-tipped melancholy jangle of A minor floats over the darkened paddles of the cactuses and the resinous asterisks along the pine branches. With the part of her mind that isn't concentrating on picking as precisely as possible, she notices how inevitable the tune is already sounding, how meant, how deliberate, this thing that she has been pulling together from who knows what vapour, who knows how. It's necessary, this hardening of the separate parts of a song. Without it, you turn to a new task. The rest would melt back into the mush of possibility again. And if you need to alter what has already hardened, there is scope to return and soften it again for a while. She does so now, as she plays back the guitar track and is provisionally pleased with it, a thought occurs to her, and she goes back and re-records the same thing on track one, only now with a reverb on. Yes, that's right. Through the physical space she's working in is the room behind an open desk, with the French doors open. Her pointillist, sad steelwork now sounds as if it's happening somewhere bigger and emptier, echoing back just a little from the surfaces of distant objects. From the remembered things, the absent things, the song will name perhaps. This is how the feel builds, laid physically into the acoustics, integrating sound and idea. 
if this were proper studio work, not homebrew improvisation, she'd go on to figure out a bass line, a piano line, maybe, on one of an electric piano's lonelier sounding settings. But with just her and a four track, the guitar is the only instrument she has space for. She wants the other three tracks for voice. That's where there's most to work out. That's where the heavy lifting of mood needs to go. And she has in mind, half in mind, half loose and indefinite and out of reach until she has the actual sounds before her and can wind them to actuality. A delicate thing, where on two of the tracks she harmonises with herself on a time delay. So the echo between two versions of her duetting in time creates, in another reinforcing way, the empty space. The longing absence of the song. Leaving the last track for her as her own backing singer. A chorus of Joes, two at the front facing each other, and another behind, doo-wopping, oo-wooing, yay-yaying, all on her terms. The land is black now, though, and the sky behind is a deep indigo, gauzy, cinematic, looking as if it's waiting shamelessly for searchlights and kettle drums. That's the trouble with living in the Hollywood Hills. Reality tends constantly towards movie cliché particularly once nightfall has smoothed away the daytime scurf of Los Angeles, refining all those one-storey breeze-block bodegas and bail bond offices into vistas of taillights and sky glow. She looks at her watch. No time to do it all, but time to begin. If she hurries. If she can manage to keep hurry out of her voice. Track two. Plug in the mic. Fetch the pad that's got her crisscross first thoughts about lyrics on it. She can hardly see it in the small leaks of light from the metres of the four-track, but it's important to have the piece of paper there, somehow, even if she's working mostly from memory. It's another solidification, another little handle on something still only half-formed. Sing a little against the guitar track with the record off to play the levels. That'll do. Remember to press the simul-sync button so the playback she's singing against isn't a randomising twelfth of a second out of sync with the voice, not a delicate game with time, that, but a toe-stubbing trip over time's doorstep when you get it wrong. Breathe. Breathe. Try to banish the anxieties of the night and find grey, silver, brown. The sound of missing what is missing. Of feeling the distance of all you name as you name it. For some reason it is getting hotter again, as if the withdrawal of the light has stilled the air currents on the hillside. The LA night presses. Pause off and Joe raises a voice, a small voice, an unhopeful voice, and sends it winding out into the hot dark. Wow. (gasps) (laughs) I know that was long, but I just can't get over the detail. No, and I have never been able to understand how people write songs. Not like lyrics, like Mm. I get lyrics, but like how people write music. But like, I feel like I understood that. That's what I felt like. I've never seen a description. I've written one song in my life, but I've learned a lot of them. And I've never seen a description in words that is so accurate about, like, trying... Even just write the process of writing in general, of, mm-hmm. like, trying to get an idea down. Yeah. I was just like, that's it. That's what it's like to try and get an idea down. And it's, like, ridiculous the amount of detail that it goes into it's almost boring (laughs) but I just love it like uh, I was having a great time and it is very rhythmic as well which Mm -hmm. is obviously intentional for talking about a musician yeah I've realized actually that I think a few of my passages that I've pictured about music which I hadn't meant 
but doesn't surprise me because <laughs> I do like music. So this is from a different character's perspective. Um, this is from the perspective of Vern and it's in London. Rain is general all over London, falling in a steady dismal downpour on the bridges, on the monuments, on the parks, on the rusting cranes in the docks, on the 20,000 sullen streets, on the sodden green of Bexford Park and the grey towers of the park estate, on last night's vomit swilling away across the pavements to join the mush of fish and chip paper in the gutter, falling too further out on the golf courses of Swanley and the avenue named after a flower, where Vern is being thrown out of the large detached house he bought before his second bankruptcy. Don't forget anything, says Kath, watching as he wrestles a cardboard box and a suitcase down the stairs. I'm not sending it after you. Fuck it, says Vern. This is an overnight bag and stuff for this week. Half of everything here is mine. It bloody isn't and watch your mouth in front of the girls. Thank you very much. Sally and Becky, aged four and six, are hiding behind their mother's legs. Daddy will be back soon, says Vern to them, trying for a voice of reassurance. But he hasn't ever had much to do with them, and they shrink away. Two stocky little girls and one stocky woman, like peas in a pod. A female family, sufficient without him. No, he won't, says Kath. Daddy is slinging his hook. Daddy? When were you ever that? We wouldn't have a bloody roof over our heads if it wasn't for me. You screwed up. I sorted it. So none of this is yours. Not anymore. It's true that it was Kath, as the accountant for Able Moral Developments, who talked him into putting the house in her name just in case. And it's true that that's what stopped the house getting treated as an asset and washed away by the debts when Albemarle went tits up. But he can remember other things being true. There's no point in arguing. Not now. But he can't help himself. You were just as much in favour of the shopping centre as me, he says. Well, I didn't think you'd make such a pig's ear of it, did I? It was the bloody interest rates that did us in, you know that. We'd have coped with them if the income had kept up. But it didn't, and whose fault is that? You picked the location, you picked the tenants, you skimped on the insurance, you. Vern, pinned by Bannister's box suitcase, feels a familiar wrath congesting him. Kath's sharp little finger is up, poking at the air in front of her, and her face is stony with dislike. But there's something else in it, a kind of satisfaction. A pleasure in being on the winning end, even in an argument about the wreck of their business. And looking at her, he wonders all of a sudden if her getting together with him in the first place ever had much more in it than this same determination to win. Kath in the back office of the estate agents where he met her, grinning at him. Kath in a wedding dress, triumphing over her sisters. Kath in bed, briskly riding on his bulk, impatient eyes fixed on him. Kath in the maternity hospital, presenting a bundled up Becky like an on-time payment. Kath's early, decisive pessimism as Albemarle ran into trouble when he was still telling himself stories of how it could come right. Kath's detachment, Kath's self-protection, Kath's stone face. She's a bookie's daughter. He should have realised she'd be good at telling when the odds change. Fuck it. All right, he says. I'm off. You need to give me the office key. Where is it? Dunno. He lies. And he uses a little bit of the rage that is thickening in his neck lets out just enough of it to bull his way past, pluck up a random umbrella, hook the front door open and stomp off down the path in the wet. Even the short walk to the mini is enough to plaster his hair, and the damp corners of the cardboard box in the cold pelt from above. It's a world of liquid noises outside, pattering from the eaves, goggles from the red brick path he never got round to weeding, 
a tireless pissing from the downpipe by the garage. A sheen of water is moving on the driveway. By the time he's wrestled the case and the box into the narrow back seat and wedged himself behind the wheel, his face is so sopping he has to blot his eyebrows with his tie so he can see straight. The mini feels tiny. It seemed cute once, a neat trademark for Albemarle, that a big man in a blue suit should emerge from a blue little car. Albemarle, big things in small boxes. That's what he had in mind to use as a slogan for the company's next stage, when they built the second, third, fourth shopping centre. None of that is going to happen now. Now the car seems like a tin skin wrapped too tight around his swollen, damp fury. Bastard thing. Bastard life. Bastard wife. Vern rocks and roars and having nothing else to do with his fat fists in the small space pounds on the steering wheel. Of course the horn sticks, sending a thin, contemptuous park of distress winding through the suburban Swanley. Some bastard neighbour would pop their nose over the hedge to see what's going on if it wasn't for the rain. He has to jiggle the steering column to make the bottom pop back up. Then he puts the mini in gear and goes. Traffic hissing on the roads of north. The wheels of buses and lorries sloshing out arcs of spray. Tail lights squiggling and goggling through the rain. The wipers on the mini can't keep up with the rivulets running down the windscreen. He hunches forward and peers. But everything is going equally slow and rain can't stop him knowing the way to Bexford. He could probably drive it blindfold. It's the A20 all the way, the Swanley Bypass, and then the Sidcup Bypass, and then the Elfin Bypass, gentle curve after gentle curve of tarmac to no place, with the green signs for the exit coming up in the gloom like unconvincing promises. Somewhere around Sidcup, he fumbles in the glove compartment and finds the cassette of Joan Sutherland singing Lucia de Lamamar. He saw her do it once, nearly ten years ago, at the point when he picked himself up from the smash of the Grosvenor and was just working out how to put Albemarle together. He hadn't met Kath yet. That was coming when he started looking for agencies with small supermarkets on their client list. And here's the whole glorious flight of that voice, bottled, time-proofed, except that the cassette is starting to glitch and fade, except that it makes tiny what was once gigantic. Still, it's better than nothing. He left the tape at the end of the mad scene the last time he put it on, so he has to squibble back through 18 minutes and there she is again, blood-stained, astonishing, throbbingly distraught. Tenors, Vern has been known to sing along to while he drives, and no one can hear the heartfelt mess he makes. But sopranos he can't even aspire to. He just listens and lets Dame Joan do the heart work for him. Past Eltham, the traffic lights begin, puddle red, amber, green on the glass before him. Red brick walls and closer trees channel the grey light descending from the sopping air and darken it. As he stops, goes, stirs through sheets of water where the drains have overflowed, the familiar matrix of the city closes around him. The 1930s semis with their triangular raised eyebrows, the Edwardian schools and the brutalist ones, the corner shops now selling lentils and fenugreek, the railway arches filled with little garages. Everywhere the plain trees, the sycamores, the horse chestnuts. So wet now they stand like pulpy chandeliers, dribbling and drooling, filtering the light away so the pavements are dim beneath. He's back under the eaves of his London. It occurs to him that this might be the last time he ever makes this particular commute. And Mad Lucia sings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and again, I know it's very long, but like, London be rainy. 
Yeah, that sounds like London. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I thought when I read it. I was just like, I've never heard such an accurate description of exactly how miserable the rain in London. Yeah. I loved that line, um, was it heartfelt mess? Mm -hmm. That's such a good phrase. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I sing. (laughs) (laughs) I like, do the heart work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. It's very poetic. I love this shit. <laughs> um, and then this one's not quite as long, but this one is also Vern, and I thought this would be a cool one to juxtapose because this is Vern at the opera. Vern has booked himself a box. Lately, ordinary sized seats have come to feel rather constricting, and in any case, the point of today is as much to show off the new opera house as it is to unveil the new production on its stage, so why not get the effect at its best? As the five-minute bell goes, he wades his way patiently around a curving corridor of blonde wood and finds his door. Oh yes, a very successful treat for the eyes. He has bought himself an elegant compartment at the foot of a vertical wall of other elegant compartments, a pigeon loft for opulence, and filling with the soft becking and cooing of wealth at play. The auditorium is deep and very steeply raked, with the seats for those of slightly less wealth rising in semicircles stacked above the semicircle. As a builder, as a builder obliged by his business model to spend time among old stuff and cunning simulations of old stuff, Vern enjoys how unashamedly new the look is. The wood is fresh and pale, the gold paint is bright, the exposed red bricks aren't pretending to be anything but straight from the kiln. He prefers out-and-out modern himself, in steel and glass, like his own flat, but this will do nicely. This is a lovely job. And when he's nudged the comfortably broad armchair round to face front, and settled there with his arms crossed over his belly, he's floating just above the orchestra, mere feet from the front apron of the stage. The company will be singing to him. The lights will go down and he will eat the music up. And it really is a good production, that's instantly clear. Mozart is not Verne's favourite, he prefers something a bit more blatant and stormy, but this version of The Marriage of Figaro does the light heavy mixture of the story beautifully. It's a bedroom farce, and it's about true love. It's got jumping out of windows and heavy duty redemption. It's a romp and it wants you to take the love lives of servants as seriously as those of counts and countesses. It goes from silly to heartfelt and nimbly back again, and all of those strings doing their pinpoint golden thing under Verne's feet for the baton of the man in the white jacket, or the right sound, somehow, for the mobile moods of it. Actually buoyant, possibly sad, say the violins. Possibly buoyant, actually sad, reply the cellos. Whatever you feel, the woodwinds put in, it will be quite clear. Though subject to change, the violins reason. Though subject to change, the woodwinds concur. Oh, that feels like you're in an orchestra. I know. I love that. I love that too. I really enjoyed that message. <laughs> I thought you would like that. Yeah. Takes me back to my old orchestra days. <laughs> you were a flutey flute, weren't you? I was a flute. Fresh chair. Really? Yes. I don't. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Check here. There's only two flautists. <laughs> <laughs> but you were the first one. <laughs> so this is my last um, passage and it's not it's not very long. This is from a character called Ben. And this is in 1994, so this is 50 years after the bomb did not go off. Mm-hmm. 
The soft brown hill of Marsha's shoulder is the first thing Ben sees when he wakes up. All he sees, in fact. He's been sleeping tucked in so close behind her that his forehead is against her neck, and when the skin of her back spreads as wide as a field, as wide as a map, when he comes up blinking to consciousness, he's seeing it from so close it isn't quite in focus. It is a deep caramel blur, stippled with the rows of freckles and the occasional dot of darker purple-black, which at the edge of his vision firms into the clarity of pores, fine down, tiny wrinkles, unrolling away from him around the cushiony curve of her shoulder blade and seeming as inexhaustible as a real hill, a whole landscape he could browse across, kiss across, pore by pore, brown millimetre by brown millimetre. Blood warms it. It swells and shrinks minutely as Marcia breathes. It belongs to someone, is part of someone who, improbably, wonderfully, loves him. It is not it. It is her. It is all her. He lies in a glowing envelope that radiates from her, as if she's so full of life that it doesn't stop at the literal edges of her, but spreads around her into the sheets, into the pillows, into the cave made by the quilt. She would say that they are keeping each other warm, but to Ben it is a kindness of hers, a gift she is giving and he is receiving. She smells of shampoo and last night's supper. He lifts his head to look, and though she stirs on the pillow, sleep still has her. She's still within the freeing cocoon of night, does not know her mouth half opens, half closes, that she grimaces a tiny bit and rubs her lips on the blue cotton as if digging gently in it. In the day, she is a talker, a doer, a person in motion, whose face shows constant quick laughter, quick irritation, quick bossiness. Only now can he admire her slow, vague, languorous, with little impulses moving in her round face that come to nothing, but buffer back into stillness before they can expand into real expressions. The outward invisible sign that, within, the kaleidoscope of dream is shifting and sliding, the pains of memory against each other, in combinations too strange and fleeting to call out definite reactions. She knows now, a knowledge made all out of ambiguous texture, what she will forget when she awakens. There is far more of her than there's ever time to reckon with in the business-like daylight. Marsha Adebisi Simpson is in the depths of Marsha Adebisi Simpson, but she is surfacing, getting closer to the light, drawn up, lured up, by Ben's fingers. Ooh, I like that. It's just so pretty. Yeah. Who knew sleep could be so pretty? <laughs> I like all the, like, the, was it like an envelope of warmth? Mm-hmm. Or... Oh, that feels nice. I know. It's just so beautiful and cosy. And that's what I mean by, like, all of this book is about moments that aren't anything, really. It's just, yeah. like normal life but it's done to such a ridiculous standard <laughs> that it yeah, makes it makes... all seem grand yeah 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 i don't have much analysis to offer to that and there's so many like you could open any page of the book and it's all like that so mm-hmm. like i've been reading it for about two months it's a slow read mm. um but it's really nice to just dip into and feel like you don't really have to pay attention to the story you can just pay attention to the words yeah.
we have a bit of a different writing section this week, don't we? Yes. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. So, Ruth, my sister, has set us a challenge. <laughs> we have been challenged to put our music on shuffle, and when that first song comes up, we have to write a piece of something, so poetry or prose, using that song as inspiration. First of all, it is a good idea, but also it is quite a lot like some of our old creative writing classes. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like getting a a prompt and having to do it. So we thought we would do it live instead of setting the challenge and preparing it before. Yeah, we thought we'd do it live and we're going to do it like we would in creative writing. So we will do the shuffling and then we're going to probably set like a five minute yeah, yeah. we'll set a five minute timer set a five we'll, minute we'll cut out those five minutes yeah <laughs> yeah we'll we'll work for five minutes and then come back and we will share what we have done yes so shall we work out what we're gonna write about yes first? shall we share the shuffle when yeah we get it? yeah okay i have a song called blue in the dark by bearings okay which is a good song but i'm gonna look up the lyrics for it because I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, I have um, "Ready for You" by Haim, but I Ooh, don't know I like that, that song, song off by heart, so I'm gonna have to look up the lyrics too. Yeah. Okay, we have five minutes. Three, two, one. Iowa. <laughs> okay, time up. Yeah, I'm just finishing my sentence. Okay. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go first? So obviously I wrote a poem because it's me. Mm-hmm. I chose the lyric from Ready For You that goes, Baby, it's about time. Okay. <laughs> Baby, it's about time and space. Your name the same place that you fled from and mine the shiny new word that you learned then saw everywhere like an old friend's car. The right model but someone else's foot on the gas. The metal husk of a moved out memory, three syllable pile up, crash. I like it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what about you? So I kind of stole a few lyrics. Of course, I'll just read it out. It goes, take my heart and make it feel, take my soul and make it real. Because I was bright, yeah, I was pale and blue, starry eyed by every thought of you. Take my hand before I go take it all because I'm a ghost wish it was something that I said to you but some rest is all I need so I took that and kind of used some of them and then made up a thing there are two ghosts one sleeps among the dead one walks among the living she once asked for his heart and soul and he pried them out of his chest gladly Take this heart and make it feel, he said. Take the soul and make it real. Even now, when he rests with the worms, she is starry-eyed by every thought of him. Underneath his concrete sky, he sleeps pale and blue. That's all I've got so far. Oof. Yep. Yep. Ghosts. (laughs) Ghosts and cars. Nice. (laughs) Love that. That was fun though. That was I fun. I haven't done that in a very long time. Neither have I, and that five minutes flew in. It did. It I, went very I thought quickly. that I had like more minutes. Yeah. To... <laughs> I was I was fully ready to go into a second stanza, <laughs> and then it was like time up. Nice. Well, maybe we will both work on those yeah, later. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs>
Do you have a quickfire favourite this week? Yeah, my quickfire favourite is a song. It's called All My Favourite Bands Use Long Song Titles So I Will Too. Oh, <laughs> By nice. Anthony Amarim. There are two versions of this with the exact same lyrics, but I like the newest version, which is on his 2020 album Sad Forever. First of all, it's got lyrics inspired by 21 Pilots, so which love. I love, and who are apparently his favourite band. So Amram has a line that goes, and it's easier to listen to all my own problems because on the radio all I hear is static. And you can compare that to Car Radio by 21 Pilots, which goes, I have these thoughts so often I ought to replace that slot with what I once bought because somebody stole my car radio and now I just sit in silence. Because you all know that I love this kind of song. It's, It's one of those ones that sounds really upbeat but the lyrics are kind of sad and Amram actually calls that out in the bridge he sings about wanting to emulate his favourite artists which is obviously what the title refers to as well Mm. because he likes pop punk and so many pop punk bands use like stupidly long titles and in the bridge he also talks about like the happy sad songs so the bridge goes I have a habit of trying to sound exactly like my idols but it doesn't even matter because I'm not as good And I tried to write the lines and I never could. I told my brain to write the words and it never would. And I am all over the place with this one. Why did the saddest songs always sound the most fun? Why do the smartest kids always act the most dumb? And what's the point of looking out if we can trust no one? So, I really like it. It's a good one. He also has a song called 2004 on the same album, which is about wanting to be in 2004 again so he can see all his favourite bands on tour and not have adult worries, which is a vibe. What a mood. (laughs) So yeah, that's it. What's the song that you put on the mixtape for my car that has a line like that? And it's like, because the music... Oh, because the music is something something, but the lyrics are so down. Oh, it's, um, yeah, that's 21 Pilots. It's not today. This song's a contradiction because of, of how happy it sounds and because the lyrics are, are so down. down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that one. What is your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite this week is an Instagram account. I hope that I pronounced this girl's name right. Her name is Christy Stein, I think. You might have seen her videos. She mostly recites poetry or pretty quotes on like TikTok or Reels. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's her own writing, but often it's other people's. Mm-hmm. And she's just got this beautiful South African accent. Her delivery is very earnest, but it's not cringy. Like somehow she manages to do the spoken word thing, but it's not like too performed. Yeah. And she doesn't do a lot of bells and whistles. She just like recites the camera. But she takes in a great scope of classic and popular poetry. She's a lovely person to follow if you've got a casual interest in it and you just want to pepper little bite-sized bits into your day. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff she does isn't poetry. It's just, like, uplifting mantras or quotes. It's just a nice place on the internet. Christy Stein would recommend. Okay, do you have a route for us? Yes, I do. So this week I'm happy because I learned that a group of ladybirds, or ladybugs for our American friends, (laughs) is called a bloom. 
Oh, a bloom of ladybirds. That's cute. How nice is that? And obviously, this got me onto all the amazing collective nouns that there are for animals. Like, you know, there's the the good ones, like a murder of crows, an unkindness of ravens, etc. Parliament of owls. Ooh. But I actually found out that most of them were made up by the same person. Oh, really? Yes. So a lady from 15th century England called Julia Berners published a book called The Book of Hawking, Hunting and Blazing of Arms in 1486. Wait, I have a vague memory of this. I feel like I did know this was a thing. Okay. But okay, yeah. So in this book she listed 165 collective nouns for groups of people and animals. Nice. And very little is actually known about her, but she's thought to be the earliest female author writing in the English language about the English language. That's cool. So... Fair place to Julia Berners for a bloom of ladybirds. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have an insight for us? Yes, we're returning to Cornwall today to hear about another little bit of folklore. And today I want to talk about piskies, or two specific piskies. And no, I'm not just pronouncing pixie wrong. (laughs) Like that's what the little fairy type creatures in Cornwall are called. Do you think that's where pesky comes from? Possibly. Mm. They're quite mischievous. Mm. They're sometimes portrayed that way, they're sometimes portrayed as helpful. It depends on what accounts you read. (laughs) There are countless pesky stories, so I might look into sharing some more one day. But today I'm going to tell you about two who are said to have brought good luck and fortune to many people amongst some occasional misbehaving. (laughs) One is Joan the Wad, who is the matriarch of Cornish Piskies. Joan of the Wad seems to come from the area of Polpero. She's also known to be associated with Jack O'Lantern, King of the Piskies. Hey! <laughs> they are both said to have led weary travellers astray at night on the Cornish moors. They're fire spirits, or as they're more commonly referred to, Will of the Wisp. Oh. Um, they emit light in a darkness and would some people say would trick humans into believing that they were following a torch or a lantern and many people say that those people would either be lost forever or led to their deaths. (laughs) However, there are also conflicting stories that state if you were to call upon the aid of Joan the Wad that she would often heed your request and lead you back to safety. There's a little rhyme that goes, good fortune will nod if you carry upon you Joan the Wad. Meaning if you carry around like a little charm of her, you'll be lucky or be kept on the right path and also just as a little root of my own i thought i'd explain joan's name so the word wad is an archaic scottish term for torch future emily here obviously meant to say cornish then it's a archaic cornish term so joan's name implies light in the darkness huh so there you go that's joan the wad and jack-o-lantern to Cornish piskies who will either lead you to your death or rescue you from it <laughs> using their guiding lights. That's so cool. I love that it's like the same as a will o' the wisp. Yeah, yeah, it is. Aww! <laughs> I'm delighted by that story. <laughs> I thought you might be. I thought we were doing a nice one. Yeah. Because they're nice. often quite dark. <laughs> Right, so it's time for our question. Yeah, our question is from Dee and it is, which book character do you want to back you up in a street fight? (laughs) 
my first thought was someone with superpowers. Mm. I was thinking a shadow hunter. Right. <laughs> Maybe like a Jace Herondale or an Emma Carstairs. But then I thought, street fight. That could do with street smarts mm. as well. So my answer is Jesper Fahey from Six of Crows. <laughs> that is that is very fair. He's a sharpshooter. He never misses. He can also just like fight. He could also just talk and or flirt us out of the fight. Mm. Because I wouldn't be helpful anyway. And I mean, ideally, I'd have all of the crows because, like, Nina could just, like, stop someone's heart. Mm. Kaz could hit people with his cane. Inesh could stab everyone. But yeah, I'm going to stick with Jesper. I feel like he'll do me well. I respect that. (laughs) I do. I forgot to think about this until right now. So (laughs) I am going on the fly here from characters I can remember. But I am going to say you know that scary crow thing from grief is the thing with feathers <laughs> yeah i'd want him to back me up in a street fight because he can shapeshift mm-hmm. he can envelop entire rooms yeah so i'm imagining like a dark alley is not a problem for him mm-hmm. and i would absolutely shit myself if a giant bird appeared as backup yeah it's probably the most intimidating thing that I have come across in a book, but also sometimes he goes to like a little small crow and just sits on the desk and is your pal. Yeah. So I feel like you'd have the element of surprise. Yep. <laughs> that works. <laughs> so that's my one. We <laughs> hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> and that's us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. Oh, is it going to have the songs from our writing shuffle? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can add those. Yeah, yes. I think it should. I think that'd be um, also, please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. And I'll throw out a request this time, which is I think that everyone else should do the the shuffle music writing challenge. Yes. And tell us what you've written. (laughs) Yeah. And also, if anyone ever wants to send anything in to us to read out, then we are more than than happy to do that. I love reading out other people's writing. So does Emily. It's kind of the whole point of the podcast. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So feel free to send us in any stuff. Yeah, nice. Okay, bye! Bye.